Hello, this is the Organic BC Podcast, and I'm Jordan Marr, an organic corn grower from BC's Okanagan Valley and the show's current host. What you're about to listen to is an episode originally produced for the 2021 BC Organic Conference. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, you're listening to the podcast of the 2021 BC Organic Conference. This episode, guest interviewer Tristan Banwell interviews Dr. Charles Massey, Australian farmer, scientist, and author. His most recent book, Call of the Reed Warbler, explores regenerative agriculture and the connection between our soil and our health, and examines the ways our farming systems need to change to make them truly sustainable. We'll also head to the conference trade show. This episode, Open Food Network. I hope you enjoy it, folks. I'll talk to you later. Please uh, tell our listeners who you are and what you do. Yeah, my name's Charlie Massey. Um, I'm a farmer. We, we run um, sheep and sometimes cattle on um, over 2,000 acres here in what we call mountains, snowy mountain countries, nothing like yours. Uh, I also, uh, having gone back to uni and done a PhD looking at regenerative agriculture and why farmers change, so I'm you know, quite involved in now writing about it. And uh, I, I believe, as we'll discuss, I'm sure that uh, a new type of regenerative farming has some of the best solutions to the major challenges confronting us as we go further into the Anthropocene. Well, I'm looking forward to chatting with you. I um, I think I introduced myself a little bit on the email, but I'm uh, doing a, a smaller scale diversified livestock operation here in British Columbia, direct marketing my meats and uh we crossed paths down at the Grassfed Exchange in 2019, chatted a little bit down there, and I, I just really found your message there inspirational and um, and your positivity, and I really enjoyed Call of the Reed Warbler. And um, as I mentioned in my email briefly to you uh, that I that I just sent this morning here in our time, um, I, I wanted to add something to this podcast series for the organic sector in BC that sort of just contextualizes what we're doing, you know, reminds people why we're farming this way and, uh, and, and that we're all pulling for the same reasons here. And, and we've got a big challenge, uh, to deal with and that we can offer a lot of the solutions through our farming practices. Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. So that, right. yeah, tell us where you're located in the world and, and what you're seeing when you, when you look out your window where you are. Yeah. Well, um, we are on the Eastern coast, uh, not the coast, the Eastern side of Australia. Uh, on a high tableland, uh, high for us. You know, we go up to over a thousand metres. Um, about two hours south of our capital, Canberra, in um, the state of New South Wales, and uh, so we, we we run an holistic grazing, regenerative grazing approach, with, mainly with merino sheep. We we grow specialty fibre for the Italian textile market, mm-hmm. uh, and in a big season, we'll bring in cattle on adjustment to help mulch and. Uh, uh, heal the land um, and at the moment um, we've just come out of three years of drought as in down to only 150 millimetres of rain and, uh, and an average monthly rain out of uh, what's normally 550 which is 22 mm-hmm. inches that is six inches in your language yeah. but we've now had a uh, wonderful spring and um, I'm looking at a garden full of, uh, we're late spring here, so all the migratory birds, the honey eaters and others are all nesting and and uh, it's just green and lush um, and compared to last year. But uh, 
when you're going an elite Merino fibre in a big season, you have a lot of issues with native grass seeds. So mm-hmm. we're going to have to manage that one. But that's a nice problem. Great. Good problems to have. So we'll circle back uh, here to this place you're sitting later in our conversation. Um, but uh, let's just cut straight to the depressing stuff and get that uh, out of the way. You've been working to share some challenging information that I think many folks know but would prefer to ignore. That humans are destabilizing Earth systems and have moved the planet into a new geological epoch known as the Anthropocene. How, how bad is it? Uh, the answer is uh, very bad or frightening if you want to let it get to you. I mean, I, I was privileged going back and doing a PhD nearly 40 years after an undergraduate in about 2009 and uh, connected back to the Australian National University where some of the world's leading uh, systems, climate systems, planetary systems scientists reside and friends that I used to mountain climb with and uh, was at uni with before. So um, that brought me up to speed pretty quickly on just how serious the situation is. And basically, since uh, the rise of modern capitalism, particularly uh, from the 20th century into the 21st, um, the behaviour of humans in burning fossil fuels and consuming everything in sight and releasing particularly carbon into the atmosphere um, it's now destabilised the Earth system. Now, people just think about climate, but it's actually the, our, our Earth, which is the only blue-green planet in the entire solar system, which is a remarkable fact. It's the only, not solar system, sorry, the whole universe. Mm-hmm. We, as far as we know, there's no other planet that has got life on it. And after you know billions of years, we've got to the stage where humans emerged. And um, we've now got the stage, once agriculture was evolved, a bit over 10,000 years ago when we started to desertify countries. And then uh, we went through the remarkable human cultural evolution of Renaissance scientific revolution. We ended up with modern capitalism. And that beautiful blue-green Earth um, is sustained after a long period of evolution by nine planetary systems. A really sobering fact is that we humans have destabilised the six key uh, biogeophysical systems that sustain life on the planet. So climate's an obvious one, not just carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide, etc. We're pumping up too much of that. Um, water, we've destabilised the entire water system. Uh, we've caused the sixth greatest extinction event of biodiversity in the history of the planet. Mm-hmm. And we're threatening ourselves. Um, and I, I could go through the others, the phosphorus, nitrogen cycle, et cetera, et cetera. But um, at this rate, uh, as temperatures increase, um, we don't know whether we could get into runaway events. Um, so that's that's the really sobering situation. That's, what really occurred from post-Second World War is what's called the Great Acceleration, when we had rising population, rising wealth, rising capitalism, the rise of the modern industrial area, we pump stuff up in the atmosphere, we consume resources, we degraded our water system, our earth system, uh, and so on. And that's what's really precipitated us. And um, so that's a negative. Um, mm-hmm. when, you, when you then look at those key earth systems that are destabilised, I believe that the best solution around to addressing them 
comes from regenerative agriculture, and I'm sure we can discuss that as we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's one thing I appreciate so much about the opportunity to talk to you, that as, although the situation is dire and the challenges facing us are extreme, you have a lot of optimism about the choices that we can make to take us forward. Before we get off of the, the negative train here, uh, I wanted to discuss one practice that seems to have outsized impact on these systems currently, and that's the enormous global use of the herbicide glyphosate. And in the United States, farmers in 2016 were using 20 times the amount of this controversial weed killer as they did in 1992, when genetically modified crops resistant to the chemical were introduced. And obviously in some crops and some regions, the increase is much, much more than that. Can you tell us about the impact that this product is having on our environment, our farm ecosystems, and on farmers' livelihoods? Yeah, it's a pretty frightening story, and obviously uh, you've got the biggest um, players in the world fighting viciously to pretend that uh, there's no evidence and to repress the information. Um, the, the, but the evidence is mounting and mounting. And the other aspect I mentioned to you earlier about the great acceleration of the destruction of the bio-DRC legal system, the same great acceleration, but the delayed, happened in the modern human health diseases. Mm-hmm. The same exponential curve for all those modern diseases. Uh, and that's a combination of the way we strip nutrients out of our food, but also the role of glyphosate, glyphosate, Roundup, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. uh, when it gets into our guts. So the key issue of um, glyphosate is that, um, and there's so much evidence, uh, it has three major impacts um, in why it's causing trouble. The first thing, it's, it's what's known as a chelator. So it was discovered in the 60s by a Swiss chemist who found it was a wonderful new chemical to strip out um, minerals and rust in, uh, in galvanised drain pipes. Mm-hmm. So that's, imagine that chelation effect when it gets into our gut. So that's the first thing it does. Uh, or gut into the soil as well. Uh, the second thing is it interferes in what's called the shikamati pathway. Now, that's a key protein formation process that occurs um, in some organisms, mainly microbes. And so uh, people like Monsanto said, no, no, it's not a problem. Humans don't have the shikamati pathway. Mm-hmm. What they forgot to mention was that our gut microbiome, our, our second brain, where um, breakdown and distribution of food and the manufacturing of proteins like enzymes, hormones, uh, all those bugs do have the shikamati pathway mm-hmm. and, and it directly cuts that off. And so that has huge uh, consequences for uh, our immune function, our hormonal bodily function. The third really critical um, factor of why it's really dangerous, glyphosate, uh, is that uh, gets into our gut and, and it's getting into our food in only minute fractions, in the parts per million. And, and it's now been found, all industrial foods have got it. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly now that they're spraying crops just before harvest to desiccate them. But even without that, it's in the soil and, and gets into the food. Um, so when it does get into our gut, it, it now has the capacity to penetrate the major protective barriers in our body, which is the, the gut lining, and the blood-brain barrier, and even the, the placental membranes, and that's where it's sort of causing havoc there as well. And, and look, people like the wonderful soil scientist John Huber, uh, the brave um, 
Bob Kramer it was with USDA, obviously not there anymore because of his youth. But that that got so much evidence. I mean, uh, Don Huber, who I've met and spent time on a platform with, he can give a two-day seminar mm-hmm. just on the dangers of life. There's so much evidence and it's quite frightening and we haven't got time to go into some of the stuff. But anyone who's denying that it's a really modern dangerous chemical to soil, food, human health and the planet, has really got their head in their sand like an ostrich, honestly. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to touch that because I just want to have, uh, you know, unequivocally that I, I would think you agree it's safe to say that no-till agriculture that relies on herbicides like glyphosate cannot be considered a regenerative farming practice. No, absolutely not. And, and we know we can now farm um, without industrial chemicals, um, uh, and, and I'm sure we'll discuss, you know, a couple of those things uh, later on in the, in the program. So, yeah, it, it's just a, a defence of that. I mean, uh, what that sort of industrial agriculture does is simplify, it's a simplified worldview of how things work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called, you know, which is reductionist thinking. Uh, when I went back to uni after 40 years, um, where I've been farming, etc. What had happened since was the rise of modern computers and electronics and, and what became system thinking and soft system thinking. And a great spin-off for that from me as an ecologist farmer was uh, our understanding of what are called complex adaptive systems. Uh, these systems, whether it's soil, water, human, animal systems, ecology, have taken, taken millions of years carefully co-evolved mm-hmm. with incredible uh, complex mechanisms. And um, to think that we can simplify that with a few chemicals and industrial fertilisers and not have severe consequences, and, and consequences not just for the environment but for human health, you know, it's, it's really a, a sign of arrogance that, uh, uh, and not humility because any true understanding of these systems, we, we realise that we are a really minute, small player in the whole system and we have to be bloody careful. Mm-hmm. how we trade and what we do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so can you tell us a little bit about your own farming journey at Severn Park there and the, the story of your own life and how that informed your, your current work with regenerative agriculture? Yeah, Tristan. Um, uh, the simple answer is I'm an expert at making the mistakes. Um, that's how I learned <laughs> Uh, I learned the hard way. So um, I had to take over a farm at 22 when my father had a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know much about managing a farm. I'd grown up there. Um, I spent a lot of time in the bush and nature. Um, so I asked the best local farmers, who, of course, I, I put in best in inverted brackets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were all good, full-on production industrial farmers. So I modelled myself on them and thought I became pretty good. In the meantime, because I was, I was interested in uh, molecular genetics, etc., we, we evolved a new type of merino sheep um, where we developed through using skin physiology. I won't go into the details, but we developed a new type of merino fibre uh, mm-hmm. and a sheep that was really excellent for animal welfare. It didn't need some of the harsh treatment that traditional sheep got. And... Um, so we developed what's called a, a, a specialised genetic breeding program. We called it a merino stud, merino sheep stud. And when we ran, when I ran into our first big drought, a five-year drought, the late 80s, 80s uh, 
I believed at that time that my major capital wasn't the soil or nature. It was these merino sheep flocks because mm-hmm. that was our main income earning. And so I had to defend that, what I thought was our major asset. And so we, we bought a lot of grain and fed ourselves into a big debt because I kept the animals. And in the process, we overgrazed and damaged the landscape. And uh, when I reflected on that, when we got into the 90s, I just realised uh, that even though I was a nature lover, I'd been acting in this reductionist, top-down, productivist sort of manner and, and had caused havoc to our landscape and, uh, and an enormous debt that took us a long while to get out of and we had to sell a bit of country. So it was then that um, I discovered in the early 90s um, the new types of ecological grazing, regenerative grazing that uh, Alan Savory and, and the leading guy in Australia, Terry McCosker, had brought out. And uh, we started, I started to do courses uh, in the early 90s and started to swing over to that practice then. But it was a result of some shocking mistakes that, you know, I, I really grieve over today. Mm-hmm. And while we're on that topic, can you talk a little bit about when, when you're talking about... Uh, the damage done to the land during that drought period. Can you talk a little bit about the impact of set stocking with grazing animals, how this leads to overgrazing, and and what we can do differently in a regenerative grazing paradigm? Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's a simple answer to why I behaved like that. Uh, not only did I have the wrong mental paradigm, but I was blind. I had no ecological literacy. I did not understand how my landscape functioned and therefore um, I thought this land was just an inanimate thing. You could build up, take the grass off, everything would be fine, keep my animals, feed them because they were, I thought they were the most valuable asset. But now I know that one of the most important things you could ever do, whether you're cropping or grazing, and that's keep your land cover, your ground cover. It pr- protects it from harmful uh, effects of solar radiation and um, the roots hold the water if you get a big storm. But more importantly, um, if you've got uh, cover on the land, it usually means uh, living plants, which are putting carbon into the soil and maintaining a healthy soil biology. And so really, um, I was ignorant of all that. And, uh, you know, there's so many factors. Once you bear the land, um, I can give you an example here in Australia, an Australian summer. If we have a 41 degree centigrade day, which is well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and, and you've got bare ground, um, less than half a centimetre down, that temperature increases in a baking effect to over 65 degrees centigrade. Mm-hmm. And no soil biology, the microbiology will survive that. So uh, at the same time, if you've taken off the cover, you don't have deep roots holding the soil and penetrating it, and et cetera, et cetera. Now, I can give you a classic example here um, four months ago. We, we kept our cover after three shocking years of drought um, by, first of all, selling down a lot and then finding a distance. So we were able to send the animals elsewhere, even up to um, 1,000 kilometres away, mm-hmm. just so we could preserve our ground cover. We had a neighbour right across the fence who just set-stocked and set-stocked and didn't de-stock and uh, what we call set-stocked, that's kept all his animals. And he turned it into dust bowl. Mm-hmm. And, and they were close to starving because he was an absentee a lot of the time. Uh, anyway, our first big uh, rain that broke the drought came in July, which is late winter. And we, we got four inches, 100 mils. And I said to my wife, Fiona, 
we're now going to be able to find out the importance of some of these ecological issues. Let's go for a drive. Mm-hmm. So we went for a drive, and at only 15, 20 mils, uh, only a quarter, less than a quarter into that big range, the neighbour's place was sheeting brown water, and his dams were full of mud and, and crap and sheep manure, etc. Mm-hmm. After after the 100 mils of rain, and his, his country just kept pouring off brown mud uh, for the whole rain event, uh, after 100 mils of rain, our country still wasn't running. And, and our dams are dry, wow. which, which perversely is a back-to-front back sort of logic, but it, it's a good indicator. And that was because we'd kept our cover, uh, plants were still alive, the, the roots were deep, a lot of perennials, etc. And that water went all in. And, and here we are, the driest continent on Earth, except for Antarctica. And when we do get a rain, they're infrequent. And this guy was wasting 80-plus percent of his rain because right. of... He, he had the same attitudes I had sort of, you know, 40 years ago. So it's no-brainer stuff, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and when when you see that and you have that worldview, it seems so obvious that that's a better way to do things. So I'd like to talk about that changing worldviews aspect a little bit and, and about, you know, why it is that someone looking over the fence line uh, and and you know, it's incredible. It can really just be the other side of the fence line. Um, couldn't be more clear than that. Uh, but when it comes to changing our worldviews from this uh, reductionist thinking and the need, you, you've described the need to combine the best of the mechanical mind with the best of the orga- organic mind. And we've also touched a little bit on that ecological literacy piece. So how can we develop that ecological literacy and what, what is it going to take uh, for someone like that or, or for other farmers to shift the way that they see the land and their relationship? Uh, you're full of easy questions today, Tris. <laughs> that, that's the million-dollar question. Um, look, when I went back to uni you know, nearly 40 years after having been a farmer and done other stuff, um, I realised the question you've just asked is the key question, that we need to change and how do we do it? And so my, my PhD thesis, I was really privileged to uh, go around Australia and interview 80 of the top regenerative farmers. And I asked them the question, men and women, uh, what was it that made you shift from the industrial uh, old paradigm? And in 60% of the cases, it was some sort of major life shock. Mm-hmm. You know, big drought, big debt, death of a spouse, burnt out in a bushfire, major animal disease, accidental poisoning with chemicals. You know, something in that order. Mm-hmm. Something that had cracked open their mind. And, and the other 40%, there was a whole series of little destabilizers. And, and some of them are, were already innately, what you'd say, biophilic nature lovers anyway. Mm-hmm. So that, to me, that was a measure of when we grow up like I did, in an industrial paradigm, the whole your whole district or region and your whole culture thinks one way. You're you're inducted into that, and it's sort of like slow setting cement in your mind. And it really does often take major life shocks to crack that paradigm open. And then that's just a measure of the way our mental constructs sort of solidify and our worldviews. And uh, so that's that's part of the reason why. Neighbours can look over the fence and yet still rationalise, oh, he hasn't got the stock on or he's doing this or doing that. They can always find an excuse. And it's because subconsciously they're defending their worldview, which is what what their life hangs around. Mm-hmm. It's a really fascinating and complex area. 
Well, and it makes it a tough, tough issue. I mean, you're saying essentially to, that to see that there could be a different and better way to farm is in, in a way it's admitting that you've been wrong and, and, and you have to be willing to say some of the things you've done in the past may have been mistakes and maybe terrible mistakes. That's exactly right. And, and I mean, it really comes back to why we've watched what's going on in Trump's America and, and around the world is that this Anthropocene, which is the greatest challenge that uh, our species has ever confronted by a country mile, you know, it's, 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 um, it's species threatening, uh, human species, let alone all the others. And, and because we're indoctrinated into the modern worldview of capitalist agriculture rather than sort of more self-sufficient organic approach to life, etc. Other than purely self-interest, which is what, you know, some of the big businesses are involved. But it's it's very hard to perceive this indirect threat of, of climate and water systems and all the rest of these planetary issues. And so it's not just regenerative agriculture, it's trying to save the planet that's also confronting this key question on how we can address entrenched paradigms. Right. And it's interesting to me to hear you saying that, you know, that so many of these, these people who shifted their paradigm, you know, it was a result or it was catalyzed by these different major shocks. And, and a lot of the shocks sounds like were, you know, even if it was influenced by climatic conditions such as a drought or a bushfire or something like that, but many of them are influenced, the severity of those shocks is influenced by that type of industrial agriculture that they're practicing on the land. So I'm wondering that, you know, since industrial agriculture has been such an enormous contributor to these earth system problems we're talking about, uh, one of your key messages is that changing our farming methods can be a key solution there. And I think about uh, the work that you've done uh, with Paul Hawken, Project Drawdown, and, uh, and I'm wondering if we can talk about how our farming methods can be both, they've caused all this harm, but that means that's a great opportunity that they can be solutions. Yeah, look, that's a key question and, and uh, it's really exciting one. Um, yeah, I really got to know Paul Hawken over the last couple of years. He's one of the, the world's leading social environmental thinkers, has been for a long while. And when he put out Drawdown, which was, you know, uh, 80, 90 scientists looking at the best methods to pull carbon dioxide, so that it was more of a single focus, really. And that's when I got to know him in that process. And um, I was visiting him in California one day and, and I'd sort of analysed the book pretty carefully. There's a lot of really good research and homework. And I said, Paul, um, your top 20 best methods, um, they're all under different names, but half of them, 10 out of the 20, are variants of regenerative agriculture. Mm-hmm. Let's call them just regenerative agriculture. If you do that, put those 10 together. We are number one best method by a country mile at pulling carbon dioxide down and putting it in the soil and addressing climate change. Mm-hmm. And he said something um, to the words of, oh, shit, <laughs> um, you're right. But he'd sort of already woken up to that, I think. And, and the result of that is that he's now well into his next book, which is going to be far bigger, far more important, going into 16, 20 languages around the world, called Regeneration. And uh, they're covering both agriculture as one of, I think it's the first section, and, and the capacity of marine environments and then human things. So it, it, um, he and the top scientists just recognise how regenerative agriculture can play a huge role. And, and I think we alluded to this at the start. If, if we start putting, which is what uh, organic farming, regenerative farming does, putting more carbon back, that immediately impacts on the other uh, three land systems 
you know, our key functions in in, uh, in the environment. So it immediately impacts once once you get more ground cover and the longer you have photosynthesizing plants, the more carbon goes in. That immediately impacts the water cycle because, as we know, uh, deeper rooted plants and carbon and the way microbiology behaves and creating proper aggregated airspace soil, you can store a huge amount more water in the soil. And that in turn has a uh, huge impact on the life of the soil, uh, which are the key guys that uh, handle the carbon and the sugars and, and, and very long-term carbon, etc. And, and, and things like microhalls or fungi and other, other critters are the guys that access all the nutrients for our food, whereas an industrial system kill those off and, and our food's only got uh, probably less than 1% of the, of the various nutrients we co-evolve for. And then the fourth biogeophysical system that enhancing the, the, the carbon system and the water system uh, is biodiversity. So, uh, you know, it, it's a win-win. And um, that's why uh, the potential of regenerative agriculture is not just about climate change. It's, it's, it's about all the other key key factors involved in, in, in a destabilised planet. Uh, you know, water, land use, the phosphorus-nitrogen inter interaction, uh, biodiversity. So as far as I'm concerned and all the reading I've done and talking to the top planetary scientists, etc., uh, we have the best solutions to the modern Anthropocene dilemma. And we probably didn't address that term, but about 12,000 years ago, uh, Earth moved out of the Ice Ages, the, what's called the Pleistocene era, into the ideal environment for life on Earth, or, or humans, and, and etc., which was called the Holocene, so the right temperature, the right carbon dioxide, etc. And that's why agriculture evolved within only a couple of thousand years of moving into that steady state. And that's continued now for <clears throat> upwards of 12,000 years. But mm. now, post-Second World War, you'd say, uh, we pretty much tip the Earth into the next era uh, called the Anthropo, the human-made Anthropocene, the, the human-made uh, new um, state of the Earth. And um, so that's really the big picture behind it. But there we are. The humans, we can cause it, but in my view, we have... Regenerative agriculture has the best solutions to addressing it. Right, and when you're talking about those, those the project drawdown work, the you know we know that the the top solution identified there is is uh, changes to refrigerant technologies and the types of gases that are released to the environment. But you're saying that when you combine together all of these different agricultural solutions. Uh, they they are even more impactful, and that that was things like um, maybe you can give me some of them. I mean, uh, these regenerative um, agriculture practices at a high level. We're talking about silvopasture, afforestation. What are some of the other ones that are, are in that list in Project Drawdown? Yeah, silvopasture systems. I think are a big one. That you know, the silvo is for trees, so it's it's growing trees in uh, in a productive landscape that animals can graze in. I don't think we've really started to exploit that. Uh, personally, here this summer, uh, this uh, late spring, we've just sown over 6,000 acorns with the right um, fungus with them, uh, with a view to, to develop developing some of those silver parcel mm -hmm. systems. Uh, but the other ones are sort of various types of organic farming, uh, regenerative grazing, uh, practices like permaculture, which evolved here in Australia. Uh, there's a whole plethora of them, but they're all doing the same thing. They're, they're um, keeping the ground covered, um, developing deeper perennial roots, putting carbon away, changing the water cycle, triggering biodiversity, etc. So um, it, it's one hell of a, an exciting story, really, isn't it? Mm -hmm, absolutely. And and the commonality there, um, you're saying, you know, the, 
the healthy soil. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about soil health. Uh, let's dig down there, pun intended. And when you talk about soil health, what do you mean? What does a healthy soil system look like? Yeah, well, you know, I work with a guy called Walter Yana, one of the top soil scientists in Australia. He uses a wonderful metaphor for healthy soil. And that is, he says, they should look like cathedrals. Mm-hmm. If you've ever been into one, you know what sort of magnificent or inspiring things they are. So uh, soil should have cathedral-like spaces, you know, voids. And what happens there is the exchange of cations, uh, storage of water. That leads to the uptake of, of essential uh, minerals, etc., etc. That impacts um, the way nutrients are uptaken uh, because in a, in a dead soil with no air spaces, uh, it's just like indiscriminately sucking up water through a straw. It's not discretional. You're not screening out toxins and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and so what happens when we overgraze or leave cropping soils fallow uh, and cause compaction, it's no different to some of those photos you see of the destroyed cathedrals in Europe after the Second World War. Mm-hmm. We've destroyed all that wonderful capacity of exchange and water storage. And, and, a, and a healthy soil should have about 50% air spaces. It, it should be aggregated. It's got these sort of sticky, congealed lump look about it instead of just baked hard dirt. And, uh, and that's because of um, healthy soils really have, as well as good bacterial balance, they have really healthy microhousal fungi. I'll give you one analogy of the importance of healthy soil with fungus in it because it's, it's largely overlooked. So in, in a um, healthy soil where you've got a lot of microhousal fungi, the root fungus, just imagine a cubic metre, uh, a small kitchen table or something of mm-hmm. soil. In that, the, the, the fungus have a symbiotic relationship with the plant. The plants give them uh, root sugars from photosynthesis. Their part of the bargain is to go off and access all the nutrients and micronutrients. You know, uh, mm-hmm. hundreds of minerals, uh, up to 90 of the minerals, but uh, hundreds and hundreds of the micronutrients. And, and so they bring that back. And that goes into our food, uh, this diverse, healthy stuff that we've co-evolved for as a species and our animals for millions of years. Conversely, if you go and spray glyphosate, put on your fertilizer, your NPK, you kill off the fungus. And so there's no accessing of that huge variety of nutrients for the plant. And really, uh, an industrial crop is looking up to the sky like a drug addict waiting for its dose of NPK. Mm-hmm. But the key, the key issue is what's absent. And what's absent is all the health-giving stuff that we need for soil. So healthy soils are probably the greatest treasure uh, of all because uh, they deliver healthy humans and healthy ecosystems and a healthy climate, healthy planet. So it's pretty fundamental, the question. Yeah, I love Walter's analogy of the cathedral. And, it, and then when we... Uh, you know, all the capacity for all the amazing things that can happen in that space. And then when we bomb it out and disrespect it and destroy it, all that we're left with is just the bricks, a pile of bricks, right? And no more capacity. Um, so when we yep. talk about the, the, the different types of things that a, that a healthy soil can support and all the soil life and the nutrient passing functions, I'm wondering, uh, really fascinating one that I don't know much about. I'm, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the phenomenon of quorum sensing intriguing. I mean, microbiologists have known about it uh, for a while, but it wasn't until a few good soil scientists like Christine Jones and, and uh, 
a lot of them tend to be women in, in North America, but also Christine Jones and others here in Australia. They made the connection. When you start developing a really healthy soil through the processes we've been talking about, keeping your ground cover and, and good organic uh, inputs as opposed to industrial, you, you get to a stage which these microbiologists call quorum sensing. And they're using the word quorum, which is a, a, a minimum number you need for meeting. And sensing is the way they communicate. So when you get to a stage of um, the, the critical mass, if you like, of a healthy soil, there's, there's a trigger that occurs in, in the microbiology uh, in the soil, which enables the microbes and the plants to start talking. They're not using Latin, French, or English. Mm -hmm. They're using basic chemistry, you know, hormones, enzymes, etc. And for example, uh, a plant that's deficient in nitrogen starts sending out signals. Hey, uh, I'm short on nitrogen, guys. Um, the rhizobia bacteria pick that up. They form nodules and start to fix nitrogen. And, and similar things happen in disease, disease prevention. In an unhealthy soil, you get lots of diseases. But in, in, when you get to a really healthy soil and you get this tipping point in the quorum sensing, for example, um, once you get to the critical mass, um, genetic changes, the switching on and off of genes, what's called epigenetics, starts to occur. And, and uh, things like uh, defensive viruses or bacteria get the message, hey, we're being attacked by enemies bacteria, viruses, whatever, go get them sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's just more and more occurring and it's, it's a really quite remarkable um, uh, state of evidence that's now been made available to regenerative farming and it just makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it's, I guess what I, what I find here is that we're dealing with systems that have taken millions of years to co-evolve in complex manner and uh, somehow post Second World War, industrial agriculture, we had the arrogance to think that humans can control what's taken millions of years to complexly co-evolve. And, and now we're finding we can't. Hmm. That arrogance is now coming unstuck. Yeah, and when we do start taking steps back in that direction, uh, it can be pretty painful to kick the crutches out uh, right at the beginning and, and, and uh, cut off the supply of the, the drugs to those addict plants and, and the crutches for those addict animals. But once you start to complete that shift, the diversity in, in the system creates its own resilience uh, that then helps with your success, reduces those input costs, and, and helps not only the planet but your bottom line. So I think it's a, uh, there's so much potential here to see lots of change. Yeah, there is. And look, that is really well summed up. And look, I'll give you one example. I'm probably preempting a question. I think you wanted to ask about some of the success stories. But... Um, mm -hmm. In, in our biggest state, which is Western Australia, um, bigger than most um, nations on earth, um, probably about a, a third of the size of the mainland United States. It's a big state, mm -hmm. um, a lot of desert in it. And compared to you guys with a lot of young soils post-glacial stuff, um, some of our soils are three quarters of the age of the, of the history of the earth. They're about 3.8 billion years old. So you can imagine there's not many nutrients in them. And there's a couple up um, in uh, the dry, sort of semi-arid country uh, of Western Australia. I write about them in my book, Ian and Di Haggerty. And um, through necessity, because they didn't have enough money and they had only 600 acres and a big debt, they, they slowly evolved just by thinking laterally a new form of cropping. And it's become so successful 
that they're now farming 60,000 acres. Wow. Um, and what they've done, they've been able to eliminate all industrial inputs. So they got rid of the glyphosate, and got rid of um, superphosphate and all the other inputs. And worked out, they worked with uh, the American, um, what triggered them was listening to Elaine Ingham run soil courses in Australia. And then got different advice and slowly put together a cropping system. And they used the same big modern machines you'll see in your cropping country in Canada and the States, giant machines because cropping huge areas. Uh, but they've just adapted them. So what they do is combine at the point of sowing uh, extraordinary um, product, vermages, which comes from earthworms, full of all sorts of goodies um, and, and biology, etc. And they combine it with compost extract from really good compost. And um, so you've got the, the food and the biology. They wrap that around the seed. And what they're finding is they've eliminated 90% at least of their industrial inputs. Uh, big profit there to start. And now they've got crops that are as good or better than the traditional natives. I mean, this system's taken 10 or 15 years to evolve. Mm -hmm. But they've got other co-benefits. Uh, we know that... Um, Microbes in the soil, when there's a disease attacks one end of it, they can communicate across uh, many acres and talk to each other to run up their defences. Um, they've found that with resilient crops, not pumped full of nitrogen, if they if they get a big rain event, they don't uh, have downgraded grain at, at harvest. Far more resistant to frost because they're not pumped up with the nitrogen into, into really um, turgid cells are far more resilient to late frost. And and so their profitability and resilience has gone through the roof. But the seed, the third key thing they do, which is really true of all good natural systems, they have ruminant animals grazing through the crop. Mm -hmm. and, and in a really dry year, that the ruminant, the bugs in the rumens will reseed the soil. They are um, chewing uh, and laying down compost. Uh, and it's done in a, in a regenerative grazing manner. So it's a synergy between animals and really good biological farming. And uh, I, I think it has worldwide application. It works in good and, and, and bad soils, um, not just these sandy, light sandy soils, but it's sort of a world breakthrough. And uh, and, and the other big benefit, I, I only got an email from uh, Di Haggerty, female partner who runs the livestock and her husband's mainly the cropper, but she said um, the rare... We've got, they've got a couple of big rare species of birds in Australia that are nearly extinct called a mallee fowl which lays its eggs in big mounds of sand which uh, allows the, the heat to catch them. They're increasing and, and a, another big bird called a plains bustard that's endangered and they're breeding up. So another co-benefits with insects to control pests in the crops and sort of stuff. So it's, it's sort of best of nature working all together uh, with farming, farmers um, using nature to, to grow healthy food. And it's still working to, to help them produce the crops that they need while producing all of these other benefits. And it's, it's so great to see stories like that, uh, not only on that scale, but of people who were able to actually scale their own enterprise through using those practices. And I, <clears throat> I always so appreciate speaking with folks like yourself who have visited a lot of farms and had a chance to see the resilience and ingenuity of farmers and the landscapes under their stewardship. So let's talk about some more of the success stories that you've seen in your travels. 
Yeah, look, um, you've just mentioned the word resilience, and, and I'll just touch on that. Um, when you work with nature in a cropping system like the Haggerty's have got, uh, you know, I mentioned the resilience of their grain crop to frost or, or, or rain at harvest. But um, there's disease resistance, and um, they, can, they can grow crops in, in only um, four, six inches of rain now, uh, those sorts of things, because the soil holds so much more moisture and it's so much more efficient. Look, there's lots of other um, similar examples. You, you, we know that um, pasture cropping uh, evolved here in Australia and another similar practice called no-kill cropping, where really in, in straightened circumstances, farmers with no money in uh, coal size with pasture cropping was burnt out in a bushfire. All he had was one silo of oats, no money, no house, no shearing shed, no fences. Mm -hmm. So he said, what the hell? Um, I've, I've got some native pasture, uh, which isn't blowing away. I'll, um, I'll drill this, um, these oats into it. And he found out that um, uh, because that, those native pastures went dormant through the, the growing season, through the winter, spring, um, he found out that by the time they woke up, um, obviously C4 summer grass, actually native grasses, which the good ones are, he was able to strip a crop and, and the synergy of grazing animals over that crop uh, and a dormant native pasture led to soil health. And, and so he's now evolved uh, a system of cropping in native grasses uh, that's viable and very cost effective. And, um, and same with... Uh, Bruce Maynard, who developed the no-kill cropping, he, he, he uses no input and just crops in a, in a tougher environment that way. And look, there's, there's, there's other sort of really intriguing cropping evolutions. You know, I've, I've, there's so many examples in Australia where we've cleared beautiful native country with our huge biodiversity and are left with no um, pest control function, etc., etc., and, and farmers that have restored if it was a rule of thumb, I would have studied 10 farmers that had gone from about 2% of vegetation left on the farm and got back to 20 or 25%. And through protection for livestock and pest control, um, their production hadn't dropped. And in some cases, it had increased up to 25 30%, even though they'd taken uh, that amount of country out of production. So um, nature's pretty good. Uh, if you give her the, the chance to do what she's good at. Okay. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And then a lot of these systems, too, that you're talking about, they're, it's not some fancy, expensive thing uh, to to start it up. I mean, the, these are people who are starting from sometimes desperate, hard-scrabble situations. They're using what they've got. They're using standard... Um, standard farming tools that we all have access to and and they're they're changing what i've heard you call the the square foot of real estate between their ears maybe something like that and and uh and and changing their worldview and they're getting these changes in their in their farm ecosystem as a result yeah spot on tristan i mean there's the old saying isn't it it's not until you're forced against the wall that you can see the writing on the wall right um and that's Pretty much, you know, it's nothing like uh, desperate times to, to force you to really re-examine yourself and your thinking, and uh, and that's where the breakthroughs come from. Yeah, it's, uh, I think that's and that's what makes this such an exciting space. That um, most of the people that are doers have done it the hard way. They they know the pitfalls, and uh, it's forced them to be more open and holistic and and empathetic too. I think empathetic with people and, and nature. Yeah, mm -hmm. and. 
can you tell me some about the, I, I had just a brief um, understanding that you were working with some Aboriginal leaders with some work, maybe, I don't know whether it was around fire or, or lance restoration and what you call it there, but could you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, uh, it's interesting. Actually, uh, uh, the, the, the famous uh, literary journal in uh, coming out of London called Granta has just done a special nature uh, edition. And, and I was asked to write um, a couple of stories. Uh, it actually was edited by Izzy Tree, who's written that wonderful book called Wilding, where they've let their, their land go back wild and, and this extraordinary transformations occurring. I, I was privileged with my wife and daughter to stay there last last year. Uh, anyway, she edited it and um, then we had these mega bushfires here in Australia, not far away. We were surrounded um, 360 degrees by all the national parks and, uh, you know, six weeks of smoke and uh, embers and leaves and bark dropping, but, but we survived it. But just down the coast was where those fires you would have seen on your national use that went you know, globally. Um, and I've, I've become very good friends with a senior uh, lawman, uh, what um, my call in North America a medicine man or certainly senior wise person. And over the years, he comes up here and uh, helps uh, because about 60% or more of Australian vegetation being such an ancient continent has co-evolved with fire. And uh, it, it, it needs fire or smoke. There's about 20 more chemicals in smoke, which, which does a lot of the triggering, causes a lot of problems in humans and animals too. But um, so that a lot of our vegetation needs fire or smoke to trigger germination, propagule, stimulation, etc. And we now know that Aboriginals have been in Australia at least 65,000 years, the oldest continuous living culture them and the Bushmen. And part of their management of landscape, and that's what it's been, we're only discovering. I mean, the prejudice against our Indigenous people and what's happened is, is it's a great shame of our nation. And uh, those of us in the regen space are realising that um, we have to re-engage, we have to, um, in a way, ask for forgiveness of what's, what's been done um, to them. But by engaging with this senior lawman, um, uh, I've been the sort of kindergarten kid and um, we've become good friends and he comes up here and we run workshops to teach his traditional burning approach, which is incredibly skilled. They know how and when to burn to stimulate country, lay down different ash beds and um, propagate the right um, trees, etc. But he's... He's back trying to regenerate country, and, uh, and and so we get him up here now to teach uh, farmers uh, how to burn country, usually in the autumn, uh, to regenerate, help regenerate it, and lay down, uh, you know, proper ash beds and stimulate growth, etc. But uh, his knowledge of how to manage country, uh, I just find mind-boggling. The way they can read a landscape and see pattern and. and um, and it must break their hearts, I think, to, to see what uh, European settlement has done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so many dimensions to consider in our relationships with the land and the history to the land. And I really appreciate your perspectives on it and the work that you're doing. And I really appreciate this 
wide-ranging and fascinating conversation and you allowing me uh, sort of the liberties to take it all the way from uh, global um, disaster to uh, the glomulin in the soil and, uh, and everything in between. And I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about how uh, our listeners can learn more about your work, uh, what you're doing there at your farm, and, and what you're doing to spread the word about these types of agricultural practices. Yeah, look, thanks, Tristan. I, I can tell you what, your, your questions have um, stirred up my grey cells. Um, <laughs> it's early in the day. Uh, so well done. Yeah, look, I guess what came out of my PhD was I realised there's a hell of a story here from all those people's stories, but so I tried to tell their stories, but then put it in context with ecological systems, but not make it heavy and academic. And also tell my mistake-ridden journey as well, etc., and the Indigenous side. So the result has been uh, a book called Call of the Reed Warbler, which is a beautiful bird, and it's a metaphor for regeneration. So Call of the Reed Warbler, A New Agriculture, A New Earth. And... Um, uh, to my surprise, it's become a sort of bestseller. And, and uh, then they did a TV story on us the other day called Australian Story. And, and that's triggering, you know, hundreds of letters I'm getting around the world mm-hmm. as a result of that. So, uh, and, I, and I'm continuing to write like in uh, journals like Granter, et cetera, because, um, and that's why I appreciate your program, mate. I, I think uh, this is such an exciting story. Yeah, it's bad. It's got a bad background. But we have some of the very best solutions to our planetary and human ill health crisis. And uh, if that's not exciting, uh, go about your daily life and regenerate the earth and grow good organic food and fiber, etc. Well, I don't know what is. Absolutely. And, you know, for our audience of people, many of whom have, uh, have the keys to these changes right outside their front door and are already taking steps in that direction so i think it's going to land well and and i couldn't recommend call of the reed warbler more i think it's just such an inspiring book it's amazing to read about these people who are doing it because you know uh uh, much like much like where you are we're in a big country it's uh we sometimes say that uh we consider someone a neighbor if they live within eight hours drive and they're philosophically aligned so it can feel a little bit lonely at times and it's actually incredible to pick up that book and see all of these uh you know just people with incredible foresight and and the work that they're doing and the successes that they're having is uh it's connecting and inspiring uh from right across the globe so uh dr charlie massey thank you very much for taking the time and for the conversation we've had Uh, great pleasure tristan and all the best to your listeners Okay, that's it for this episode, everyone. I hope you enjoyed it. Hey, did you know that all of the music for this podcast is the work of, like, a pretty big deal in the jazz world? And did you know that the artist is the dad of one of your colleagues? I'm talking about jazz flutist Matt Eckel and his daughter, Aubin Banwell, co-owner of Spray Creek Ranch in Lillooet. A big thank you to Matt, who not only let us use the recording you're listening to now, but also recorded seven different transitions for us for moving between segments. If you want to listen to Matt's music, this song is called Grand's Blues. The album it's from is called Flute Jazz, and Eckle is spelled E-A-K-L-E. Thanks again, Matt. All right, that's about it for now. I'm Jordan Marr, your conference coordinator and MC, and I'll talk to you soon.